entrance into the city uh, on the first Palm Sunday. Most of you, I trust, know this. You know this passage. You know the text. You know the story. You know where it fits in the overall scheme of things. Even though you know all of that, that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, Just to remember. So look with me at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, you came in humility. And when you come again, you will come in glory. But you have come. And you are the king. We don't wait for you to be king. You are the king. And because you are the king, ruling and reigning, we ask you that you would commission your spirit to come and teach us and remind us of some things so that our hearts might be encouraged. Jesus, we ask this in your name. We ask this that you might be pleased. We ask this, that we might be inclined to follow hard after you and walk the path that you have walked before us, knowing where that path leads, that that path leads to the very presence of your Father and ours. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. This is Holy Week, and I, have to, I just have to tell you, this is killing me. It's killing me. Not that it's Holy Week, but it's killing me that we're still surrounded by sharks. <laughs> and it's killing me that we've had to take basically a week full of services and cram them into one service. The movement of this service is from... Jesus' entrance into the city, it it begins with these words, the call to worship, Psalm 118, uh, which which is the text that was sung as Jesus entered into the city. And it progresses really quickly from the celebration 
of the arrival of Jesus as king to what follows that arrival of Jesus in the city, his betrayal, his arrest, his arraignment, his trial, the verdict against him, the verdict of guilty, the guilty one taking the place of the, the innocent one as the guilty one taking place, the place of the guilty ones who need innocence, followed by his execution, and then his glorious resurrection. You know, the first pieces of that all get sort of crammed into this, this service. Next year it will be different. So, but this is still a great occasion, and it's a great opportunity to remember some things, to remember the big picture, to remember the big thing that is going on, and that this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem begins the culmination of the life and ministry of Jesus. And this sequence of events, beginning with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, this whole sequence of things is at the center of the scriptures, and in fact, it's at the center of all of history. Uh, we're so familiar with these things, and, and you know the, the proverb, Familiarity breeds contempt, and if it doesn't breed contempt, it at least breeds indifference. And we can become indifferent about things that are so commonplace, but these things are at the center of the scriptures, and they're at the center of the whole of human history. So here are some things that I'd like for us to remember. First, four of them. First, this is what the prophets were looking for. This is what the prophets were looking for. This narrative in, in Mark chapter 11, which you find actually in each of the four Gospels. This is just Mark's narrative of the entrance of Jesus focuses on this, this donkey, in fact, the foal of a donkey, a colt. Uh, and that is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, the, the prophecy uh, which is fulfilled here, a prophecy that points ahead. The arrival of the king would be an arrival on, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey, on a, on a young donkey that no one had ever ridden before or sat on before. It's the fulfillment of what Zechariah had in view, that particular prophecy. But, you know, that little point, I suppose, that, that singular point in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9, 9, is, is a point that stands sort of at the apex of, of like an iceberg, if you will, of prophecies, a whole host of Old Testament prophecies, all of which are directed at the person of Christ and find their fulfillment in the person of Christ, okay? You need to get this if, if there's some residue of this idea in, in your heads. Let me tenderly, pastorally, passionately try to Try to remove that residue from your brains, okay? The Old Testament is not a plan A which is rejected and then that gives way to a plan B. The whole of the Old Testament is aimed in the direction of the fulfillment of everything in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this, you know, this little point at the top of the iceberg of all of these prophecies is a way for us to be reminded of that. Peter has this in mind. First Peter, the first chapter, the 10th verse, he's, 
He's just talked about this glorious salvation. He's writing to Jews and Gentiles who were dispersed throughout all of these regions of Asia Minor, Cappadocia and Bithynia and all of the rest. He's writing to Jews and Gentiles. And he's telling them about this salvation that they've come to enjoy that is found in Jesus. And in verse 9 of that passage, he talks about that salvation as being something so glorious, so great, that it fills them with an inexpressible joy. A joy inexpressible and full of glory. And he reminds them in verse 10 of, of that first chapter about this salvation that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, Jew and Gentile, a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue on the face of the earth, that salvation which was to be yours, all of yours. These prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating to them when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You see, it's all there in the Old Testament. The sufferings which nobody wants to hear about, nobody wants to talk about. They didn't then, we don't now. But the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, it's all there in the Old Testament. And while the prophets had particular concerns in their particular moments in history, concerns for their people living in those particular moments in history, they had a greater concern, a greater preoccupation. And that was this promised one who would come and who, when he came, would bring salvation. That's what Peter's talking about. That's what Peter's thinking about. This great salvation that would come in the person, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, if you want to understand what the prophets are speaking about, if you want to understand what they're looking for, listen to Jesus. It's this great passage at the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24. It's one of my, I say that about a lot of passages. It's really true. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole of the Bible, Luke 24. It's the story of Jesus meeting these two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. You remember, it's, they're, they're walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is this little village about seven miles west of Jerusalem. And they're on the road, and Jesus encounters them. And they're downcast. They're distraught. They're depressed, maybe even afraid. They know that Jesus was arrested and executed. Maybe they're afraid, thinking if they are known as those who identified with Jesus, the same thing could happen to them. Well, Jesus meets them on the road. And as they're walking with Jesus along the road, Jesus baits them. He baits them. Now, it's not a bait and switch, but he baits them. Okay, what are you talking about? They're having this conversation, these two guys. And if you read the text, it's really striking. I never saw this until this last week. The text of Luke 24, 17 says, when Jesus asked them that question, they stood still looking sad. In other words, Jesus stopped them in their tracks with his question. And they said, are you the only one you know this passage. Are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who isn't aware of the things that had happened? And Jesus baits them again. What things? What are you talking about? What things have happened? 
And they refer then to this prophet of God, this one who had come, who is mighty in word and deed, but the authorities put him to death. And then these two disciples say to Jesus, there's this rumor. There's this rumor. Some of the women who were among us, and of course, you know, women can't be trusted. Women can't be trusted. You you know that that was codified in Jewish and Roman law, don't you? You know that the testimony of women was not admissible in the Jewish courts or in the Roman law courts. You know that? I tell you, it's a real argument for the authenticity of the Gospels that the Gospels record the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus not being theologians, not being pastors, not, but women. The first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. These women have come to us and they've said, they've started this rumor that Jesus who was betrayed, executed, and put in a grave is alive. And then Jesus speaks to these distraught disciples And he takes them to Moses and all the prophets and he shows them how in all of the Old Testament scriptures the things written there concern himself. And so for the next couple of hours, I mean, can't you imagine Jesus on the road with these two guys and they're walking along and he takes them to Genesis 3.15, then he takes them to Genesis 22, then he takes them to 1 Kings 4. Then he takes them to 2 Kings, and he takes them to Isaiah, and he takes them to Zechariah. He takes them all through the whole book. Can't you imagine them stopping at points along the way saying, you're kidding. That's about the Messiah? For hours, they walk along the road. They come to the village. They have dinner together. Jesus breaks bread. They recognize him. They see him. They acknowledge who he is, and they say, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked to us about the scriptures along the road. The inner testimony of the Spirit. That's what the theologians call that. Our hearts burning within us, testifying to us that these things are true, and then he disappears. And you know what? This is such a great story. Then you know what they do? They get up from dinner immediately, and they head back to Jerusalem. They retrace their steps the whole seven miles. They find Peter and John and the rest, and they say to them, these women are not crazy. If they are, we are. The Lord has appeared to us. And then Jesus appears in their midst. And for the second time, in just a few hours, Jesus takes them to the Old Testament. And in Luke 24, 44 to 45, He refers to the three major divisions in the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he takes them again through the whole of the Bible to show them that he is at the center of all of it. He is the fulfillment of the whole thing. His birth, his life, his ministry, his death, but most especially, obviously, the events that transpire transpire on this week, beginning with Palm Sunday, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. 
next year, really and truly. I guess I guess I should offer the caveat that I haven't asked permission to do this, but I'm going to lobby for it for reasons that will become evident in just a minute. Next year, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday service, Saturday, Easter vigil, and Resurrection Day on Sunday morning. Unless the Lord returns, or unless people who grant certificates of occupancy find horrible things wrong with this facility and we can't get in it for another year, unless those things happen, we won't compress all of this into one week. We will live with it, walk through it for a whole week. So that's the first thing. Just remember that all of this points to Jesus and finds its fulfillment in him. And here's the second thing. Just quickly, let's be reminded as we come to this particular passage and this whole sequence of events, let's remember that something really did happen. Something really did happen. It's probably one of those things that I say ad nauseum, but I have to keep saying it. I say it at Advent, and I will say it to you again next Sunday. I'll be more brief about it. But let's just remember that something really happened. Now, why do I stress that? Well, here's why. I stress this because everything around you in the wider culture, everything you see, everything you hear, everything you read, gradually has chipped away at in an attempt to neutralize and defang and enervate, that is, rob the energy from what is central to our conviction as Christians. And that is that something really did happen in the past. God really did come into the world at the first advent. And God, in the person of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, did walk our streets and sit at our tables and live among us. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory Glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And at the end of John's gospel, John says you could fill the libraries of the world with all of the things that could be written about Jesus. And in the last 20 centuries, people have done that. They have filled the libraries of the world with things about Jesus. But John says the reason these things are written is so that you might believe that he is the Son of God and that by believing in him you might have life. John's not spinning yarns out of his own brain. Neither were any of the other disciples. They died for this. Something really happened. I started a new book this last week. It's a book by a fella called Dermod McCullough. It's a Scott, if you couldn't guess. And it's a book on the Reformation. It was written in 2004. It's big and it's fat. McCullough wrote a great biography of Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer's story is a great story if you want to read a great biography of a very conflicted man who ended up on the right side at the end of things, who ended up dying, being executed, burned at the stake because of his commitment and allegiance to the doctrines of the Reformation, 
who, as he was being burned at the stake, raised his right hand and said, With this I enter the flames. Because it was with his right hand that he had recanted Reformation doctrine, had returned to the Roman church, but then recanted his return to the Roman church, signed his own death warrant when he subscribed to the doctrines of the Reformation and said he wanted the first thing to be burned to be this hand with which he had recanted the truth of the gospel. Well, McCullough writes this book on the Reformation. I'd read the one on Thomas Cranmer, so I pick up this book on the Reformation. And in the preface to it, he makes this comment about dating, his approach to dating. Not boys and girls, not that kind of dating, but how you identify significant things that have occurred in the course of human history, in the course of the development of Christianity. And this is what he writes. I employ the, quote, common era usage in dating since it avoids value judgments about the status of Christianity relative to other systems of faith. You see what he's saying? He's not going to use A.D., He's not going to use Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, which is your local newspaper's way of dating things. He's not going to use Anno Domini, but he's going to use common era, the nomenclature of common era. Why is he going to do that? Because he doesn't want to offend people of other faiths. He doesn't want to say Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, marking time from the first advent of Christ when the God of heaven and earth, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, incomprehensible, comes into the world in humility and weakness, taking flesh to himself, flesh like yours, suffers all the frailties and brokenness of life in this world. Anno Domini, from the year of the appearing of our Lord. He doesn't want to use that language because it's offensive to people of other faiths. Well, listen, folks, you can use CE, you can use XY, you can use P3. I don't care what designation you use. The fact of the matter is it was on October 31st, 1517, CE, P3, XY, AD, I don't care what nomenclature you use, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther. And I looked in the book to make sure that Dierman McCullough was still identifying the same day. October 31st, 1517 is the day that history records Martin Luther having nailed his 95 propositions for discussion to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And I was born April 17, 1951, by the same counting of days, by the same measuring of time. And whether you're in the United States of America or Beijing, China, or places where they don't even write, time is marked by the appearance of the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. 
And you can change the nomenclature, but you can't change the fact. And everybody has to deal with it. Everybody has to deal with it. So there's the second thing. Something really did happen. And here's the third thing. And these are big picture things, okay? Things that I'm provoked to by this particular text. Here's the third thing. Time belongs to God. Now this, of course, obviously sort of flows out of what I've just said. Time belongs to God. Time, the succession of moments, moments that lead to days, moments that lead to years and to centuries and to millennia across the whole of human history, the relentless, irrepressible march of time belongs to God. Belongs to God. You know, in the New Testament, in, in the Greek language, there are three different words. They all come over into English pretty much come over into English. Three words that are used were used by the Greeks to talk about time. One is chronos, chronology, right? It's the succession of moments. Another one is, is aeon, which is eons, you know, which is vast, vast expanses of time. But the third usage of time, kairos, Crisis moments, significant moments, moments of specific and special redemptive significance. In the succession of moments, there are these kairos moments, these critical moments. And all of history hangs on these critical moments. Time belongs to God. God manages time. You ever been to a seminar, a time management seminar? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Mine would be the first one to go up. Okay? What's always struck me about time management seminars is that time doesn't need to be managed. You can't slow it down. You can't speed it up. You can't do anything about it. It's in somebody else's hands. I'm the one who needs to be managed, not time. Time management? How ludicrous. Time is in the hands of God. God created it. It comes from him. All things come from him. Time is the stage upon which God, the principal actor in human history, acts out his drama. His drama. Time doesn't belong to nations. Time doesn't belong to kings. Time doesn't belong to you. Time doesn't belong to me. Time belongs to God. God taught the Israelites this. He taught them about this in creation God's creative activity occurs in time. It leads to the Sabbath, to a day of rest and delighting in the completed, finished work of God. Six days you'll work, then on the Sabbath, Sabbath you will rest that seventh day. Augustine, um, you know, you pick these things up over the course of time. They're wonderful things to think about. Augustine was astounded by this fact. I mean, Augustine wrote this vast thing on the Trinity, this big book on the Trinity. I mean, he, with his little brain, and he had a big brain compared to you and me, or at least me, but with his little brain compared to God's limitless wisdom, Augustine tried to plumb the depths of the Trinity. And, and Augustine, in reflecting upon the creation, was amazed that God, who is all of those things that I said just a minute ago, infinite and eternal and unchanging, limitless in power and glory, Augustine was amazed that God would create the world in time. 
that he would do it in time. He could speak it into existence in an instant, in a nanosecond, in less than a nanosecond. But he took time. Now, what do we mean when we say to one another, take your time? What are we saying? We're saying, because we're weak and frail and limited, we're saying, be careful, be patient, watch what you're doing. You know, you take those things and you apply them to God who can speak perfection into existence in a nanosecond. What Augustine saw was that God, who created time, exhibits, exhibits great care, great patience. As he brings the world into existence, he fashions it, he forms it. You know, Augustine doesn't seem to have been all hung up like we can get hung up about whether it was six days or six years. Whatever it is, the thing that he was amazed at is that God used time, employed time, which is expressive of God's tenderness, expressive of his care, expressive of his love and his wisdom as he brings the creation into existence. Time belongs to God. He taught them the same thing. Not only did he teach it in his works of creation, but God taught Israel this in his works of redemption. That redemption is played out in time. And how did God do that? Well, he did it by the Old Testament cycle of feasts. The three key feasts, the three big days in Israel's life, Passover, first fruits, and tabernacles or booths. Passover, initial deliverance, first fruits, celebrating the early harvest, the harvest of barley and flax and spring wheat. First fruits. What are the first fruits? They're the promise of a greater harvest. When is the greater harvest celebrated? It's celebrated at booths when everybody builds a little hut and they rejoice that God through the year has been faithful again. An agrarian culture, agricultural cycles, but God infuses them with redemptive significance. He uses the seasons following one another as a way to remind his people again and again and again that history, time, all of it are in his hands. And every year there was that cycle. Every year. Now I want to take my cue. I want to take my cue from the Old Testament. Again, I haven't asked. I hope I'm not getting myself into trouble, setting myself up for a big disappointment here. But I want to take my cue from the Old Testament. Why has the church across 20 centuries <coughs> celebrated... Advent and Easter, minimally, annual reminders, just like there were annual reminders in the Old Testament. Why, why celebrate Advent and Christmastide and Epiphany and then Lent leading to Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Resurrection Day, followed by Ascension and Pentecost and then Trinity Sunday at the end of the whole cycle of celebrative events celebrating that the triune God of history has redeemed his people. Why would we do that? Because I forget. And I need to be reminded. And I want to enter into this annual celebration 
in which God, in time, across the centuries of history, has accomplished redemption for his people. Time, the succession of moments, and the specific kairos moments. All of it belongs to God. And then here's the fourth thing. Finally, this Palm Sunday reminds us that this sequence of events, this holy week, really is at the center of everything that God is doing. I come back to where we started. But let me take you to Luke's Gospel and Luke 9. You can read the passage this afternoon. But let me take you to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 9, which is Luke's record and account of the transfiguration. And Luke's account of the transfiguration is the only one of the four. John doesn't have an account of the transfiguration. Not sure why. I'll be anxious to ask him. Matthew and Mark do, but Luke's is the only account of the transfiguration which includes this unique detail. Matthew and Mark record that Jesus was there with Elijah and with Moses. Moses representing, we typically associate Moses with the law, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, but Moses as the type of the Christ who would come, the type of a deliverer who would come, anointed by God with power for the deliverance of a people. Elijah, we typically associate with the prophets, but if you remember Elijah, Elijah is the one who escapes out of this world, leaves this world in a stunning and remarkable way. Maybe there's something more going on here than just law and prophets, Moses and Elijah. Maybe there's something here about deliverance, redemption, and final entry into the promised land. What's so interesting in Luke's account of the transfiguration is that he records what it was specifically that Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about on that mountain. They were talking about Jesus' exodus. The old King James says his decease, his death. Most of the translations will talk about his departure. The word in the original is ex hodos, the road out. Peter uses it again in his first letter. He talks about his own departure. But what Peter was talking about and what Jesus is talking about are two wildly different things. Peter was talking about his personal departure, his personal road out, him, him alone. But when Jesus is talking about his departure, his exodus, and what happens in Jerusalem, he is pointing to himself as the greater Moses who accomplishes a greater deliverance which results for the people of God in what Elijah's departure resulted in for him, deliverance into the very presence of God. And when Jesus takes the road out, my friends, he doesn't go alone. He doesn't go alone. 
Look, I know you're sitting here on padded chairs. Three months from now, they'll be much more comfortable. I know this is where you are. This is where I am. But when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world just as Moses went into Egypt. He went into Egypt, Moses did, for a specific people. A chosen people. A treasured people. A beloved people who were imprisoned and in need of redemption. And by the power of God, he led that people out in the direction of their promised land. And when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world as the greater Moses for a people whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. Read John 17. You have given me authority over all men that I may give eternal life to those whom you have given me. The Father gave a people to the Son and the Son came into the world for that people. A chosen people who were treasured and precious in his sight, whom he has loved with an everlasting love, who needed to be delivered. Not from an earthly bondage, but from their bondage in sin and death and brokenness and helplessness and despair and unbelief and all of the rest of the miseries that are part and parcel of life in this fallen world. That's why I love Holy Week. Because I need to remember these things. I need to remember these things. So remember them, I encourage you, as you head into this week. Remember that Jesus is at the center of the whole of the Old Testament. Remember that history is in God's hands. Remember that time, the succession of moments, the specific redemptive moments of human history are in God's hands and remember that your deliverer has come for you because he loves you. And he has come to take you with him through the heavens into the holy of holies, into the very presence of the God who has loved you with an everlasting love. Let's remember these things this week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, fill our hearts with awe and wonder and deepen our love for you because of these things. Lord, I confess to you for myself and I suspect at some level for each of us here that because these things are so familiar, we do kind of become dead to them. Oh, God, by your spirit, would you stir up our hearts? Would you stir up our faith? Would you stir up our vision and give us grace to see with clarity these things that are true, inviolably, unalterably true, that Jesus may be praised? In his name we pray. Amen. Stand with me as